Hello, and welcome to Workle's Meet the Business Author podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. In this podcast, I'll be speaking to a range of people who've written books on business. From a range of authors across all industries, this podcast aims to help you understand more about business and how to create success. So on this edition of Meet the Business Author, I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Cross, who has just published his new book, Beyond Collaboration Overlobe. For more than 20 years, Rob has studied the underlying networks of effective organisations and the collaborative practices of high performers. He's worked with more than 300 organisations and has reached thousands of leaders from the front line to the C-suite. He has identified specific ways to cultivate vibrant, effective networks at all levels of organisations and at any career stage. Through research and writing, speaking and consulting, and of course, the tools that Rob set out, He has strategies for transforming the way people lead, work, and live in a hyper-connected world. Currently, Rob is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College in Wesley, Massachusetts. Rob is also the co-founder and director of the Connected Commons, a consortium of over 100 leading organizations, accelerating network research and practice. He's written numerous articles for the Harvard Business Review and many more. I'm delighted to have Rob join us to talk about his new book. So, Rob, it's great to have you uh, join the podcast. Um, Just for our listeners, uh, before we talk about your latest book, uh, just tell us a little about your background and your career. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. I I got interested in the network ideas actually 23 years ago. It keeps getting longer and longer, it seems, but I was uh, working on how to design technologies that more mimicked how people thought so we could move knowledge across organizations more seamlessly. And I kept hearing every time I asked, you know, people how they solve problems at work, very few people mentioned the technology. They always mentioned tapping into networks and people around them. And so it got my interest in being able to say, if we could map analytically who was interacting with whom and understand how collaboration was happening in large groups, you know, uh, 10, 15, 20, 80,000 people, it would give a really different sense of how work was getting done uh, in organizations. And so I started there, uh, formed a consortia that's grown into something called the Connected Commons And that's evolved to about 110 organizations now that are actively applying these analytics to see how to make improvements in organizations. Uh, But it's been a a fantastic (laughs) journey, you know, both being a faculty member and and that side of my life, but also just having the privilege of being able to work so closely with these organizations in developing and refining the ideas uh, over the past two decades. And and one of the things that you draw out in, in this book, but more generally, is um, that high performers are better at um, connecting and collaborating. So when, when did you first have that thought and, and what work have you done to, to demonstrate that? Yeah, great question. So I um, would run these analytics in places and see who was collaborating with whom, and then I would get separate performance data from the organizations. So sometimes that could be uh, promotion, early promotion, sometimes HR ratings, sometimes revenue production, sometimes patent counts. You know, there are a lot of ways that we would uh, go about it. But what I was seeing over and over again was that only in very transactional work did we see that a big network predicted a high performer. So like residential real estate sales. <laughs> and, but in most other cases, 
um, what was predicting the high performers was rather first that they were more efficient networks. The, the people were collaborating in ways that was buying back about 18 to 24% of their time. And then importantly, they were investing that time in a way that enabled them to be more innovative and create greater scale in their work. And so um, this is a set of things we were looking at analytically at first, then uh, have done over 600 interviews to really understand kind of pragmatically <laughs> what are they doing. And so that sort of takes us quite neatly on to, to your new book. Um, so um, tell our listeners about Beyond Collaboration Overload, because at the moment, it really does feel like overload. There are so many social media channels and uh, people just must, their heads must be spinning about the number of networks out there and how they use them effectively and efficiently. So just talk to us a bit about your book and what people can learn from your book. Yeah, great, great. And it's a stunning time. I mean, never have we had the ability to shape what we do and who we do it with as much as now, but we're also simultaneously crushed with the, the various uh, channels coming at us. And that's what got me interested starting about 10 years ago. You know, analytically, we were seeing that the volume of collaborative demands was rising rapidly on people um, because of a whole set of things, right? The, the organizations that have been delayered to try and streamline decision-making cycles, but they've created an enormous collaborative demand on people. Uh, the various technologies, what, what I was finding in my studies is people uh, were in organizations were managing across up to nine different platforms to get work done. And it sounds ludicrous, but you start thinking about email, instant messaging, the team collaborative space, the video conference call, the gratitude application, you know, and quickly you get across this dizzying array of things um, to where we could see pre-pandemic uh, people were spending about 85% of their week in collaborative work, right? Just trying to get to the work they had to do. Uh, and we've seen this number go up about five to eight hours in the pandemic drifting earlier into the morning, deeper into the night. And so it, it felt like uh, never has there been a better time to really understand what are the people who are doing this better doing? You know, those people that are getting back 18 to 24% of their time. And so that really launched it, you know, was to kind of get a sense of uh, pragmatically with tons and tons of interviews, how these people are securing that, that time on the margin. And so the question there then has got to be, so what are they doing? So what I, what I could see is, um, uh, first of all, it's not one single seductive thing, right? That's what everybody always wants, just one principle that everybody should do. And what I can see is that that's not the answer uh, in this, that this is a game that people win. I, I call it, it's a brawl in the ballet, but it really boils down to three categories of things they do talk about in different chapters. One is how they're putting structure into their work. So you find that the more efficient collaborators, they're more likely to block collective time. Uh, they're more likely to strategically calendar Friday night or Sunday night, usually with a one-week horizon and three-month horizon. They manage interdependencies, you know, of asks coming at them well before the demand comes. They just do a lot to shape what they're getting involved in um, that way. Uh, number two, um, and the thing that really surprised me <laughs> in all this work is um, they're more attuned to their own triggers that lead them to jump in when they shouldn't. And this kind of caught me off guard. I didn't expect to see this. I, I'd assume the collaborative overload was the enemy was out there. You know, it was email time zones and losses and nasty clients. And as I came through it, I could see that 50% or more of the problem is us and how we jump into situations, um, just knee-jerk reactions because like accomplishment, right? Or we like status, 
and being in the thick of things or we like to help. Um, and, and it, you know, at certain levels, if you're helping directly, you get overwhelmed. So I found second thing that, that people were good at kind of guarding against what's that tendency I have that gets me into trouble. I may not experience it six, 12 weeks out, but, you know, I was the one that started it <laughs> a lot of times. And then third are just tactical items, you know, around how, for example, are we using email? So with the efficient collaborators, um, rather than saying, I can't control all of email, so I'm not going to do anything about it. They would say, gosh, my team generates 50, 60% of the email uh, I get involved in, and let's set some norms against that, you know, around not excessively CCing or not sending it after 10 o'clock at night. If you have to do it, then send it on a delay the next morning. And that's kind of the nature of this. It's all these small practices, and the trick is for people to get down to two or three that they're persistent on that have the greatest impact for them, right? And that's what I see kind of winning the day for these people today. And, and in the, the hyper-connected world that you talk about in your book, what, what role do managers have, senior managers, in terms of setting tone and discipline to make the whole organization more efficient? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, I, you know, in part, even that simple idea of what, what I was just saying of don't send emails after 10 o'clock at night, um, it, it, it sounds simple, but a lot of people, that's when they can do the work, and, and they should if that's their rhythm but they can send it on a delay rather than send it then and then inspire the 1001 response and the 1005 and the 1010, you know, the always on culture. That's, that's a really important thing for people to think about. Like what's the tone that we're setting? Is it reasonable? I think a second thing that's really critical is as collaboration has become almost synonymous with work, um, what's happened is our analytics haven't kept up with that in, in most organizations. And so leaders don't have a very good sense of the collaborative footprint of their asks anymore. And what happens a lot is, you know, a leader can say, you know, task A and task B look similar in terms of the work, but if task A is just coordinating in your unit, six or seven or eight people to get the thing done, task B requires you to coordinate across three time zones with two areas that have different incentive schemes and two leaders that don't like each other. I mean, that's an entirely different world of work. Um, and that's invisible to people. You know what I mean? They're looking at their project or their role descriptions or things like that. We've got to get better at that um, over time because we can track, you know, expenses down to two decimal places. And yet we have no idea of where 85% of people's time is going in this context. And it's, it's resulting in untenable work demands being placed on people and you see it right the stress and burnout and everything else that's happening today so those would be two things i would be thinking kind of culturally and then getting better at knowing the demands of the work um, to make it sustainable and and rob in terms of personality types are there certain groups of personality types management types that find this harder or or easier or can anybody apply these principles I, I started the work 20 plus years ago thinking you'd see a lot of that, you know, extroverts and introverts, for example, or other things. And it, it turns out, generally speaking, you're as likely to see an extrovert as an introvert in the center of these networks. Um, now, there's a slight difference. The extroverts might be reaching more. The introverts might be being sought more. And there's a little bit of nuance like that. But at the heart of it, for me, what was particularly you know, helpful in all of this is that having a good network didn't boil down to just personality and charisma. What it does boil down is as intentionality. You know, we find the people that 
do these things that buy time back and then invest that time well, they're the ones that are winning at a disproportionate rate. Um, but it, but it can very much be learned. You know, there's uh, a charisma. Something like <laughs> and, and one of the things I often hear from people working in big corporates is there are too many meetings. Mm. There's too much collaboration. What would you say to those people? Yeah, and, and this is the hard part because what, what I really want to emphasize in the book is sometimes people see the beyond collaboration overload and they think, oh, Rob's saying don't collaborate. And, and I'm not at all. You know, what I'm, what I'm saying with the work is here's how you get back time. Here's how you create efficiencies to enable you to collaborate uh, differently. Um, but what we've, what's happened in a lot of places is we've kind of lost the intentionality of the meetings and meetings have become as, as has video calls or email in some ways, it's become a solution for everything. What that means is, especially going through the pandemic, that we have moved from, for example, maybe having days where we had eight one hour meetings to days now where everybody's trying to jam more meetings in. So people have 16, 30 minute meetings <laughs> and it's exhausting, right? You've got to be more focused in those 30 minutes. You're moving across topics more rapidly, which requires us to catch up. And then you end the day with a to-do list based on 16 meetings, not eight uh, anymore. And, and it's just kind of created a, a frenzy, right? And so what we can see that the more successful people do is they're more likely to block reflect and ensure that they have typically two hour blocks we know is pretty close to the optimal. Uh, they're more likely to, for example, communicate that they're gonna do email in 30 minute bursts three times through the day and when they're gonna do it. But they're doing things that are putting structure back into their work and not letting the meeting overload dominate their, their calendars as much. Because uh, it's a really, uh, it's a big deal. It's a big problem. And, and Rob, your, your book has some great in-depth stories, uh, illustrations. Is the one that really stood out for you in illustrating uh, the work addiction so many of us suffer from? Yeah. So it, it for me, a lot of it boils down to just that, you know, the, the insidious nature of collaborative overload. <laughs> you know, it, it's, a, it's a funny thing in that it feels good right up until it doesn't, right? Because there's energy around what you're doing. People are reacting. You know, the feedback is positive. You feel like a momentum is building. But what you see that troubles me actually in a pretty significant way is people move into their mid to late 30s. And as the work responsibilities and life responsibilities have kind of accelerated, they tend to start falling out of the things that kept them healthy and whole to begin with, right? They tend to fall out of their athletic groups or their book clubs or music you know, affiliations or religious affiliations. And they get more and more unidimensional. And what I find is overall in this work, the happier people that kind of are, are, are both managing, performing well and sustainable, they tend to maintain at least two and usually three of those groups outside of work. They don't let them go because it adds dimensionality to who we are. Uh, the people that get, you know, very unidimensional or work addicted, um, their their lives rise and fall depending on the vagaries of work, <laughs> to, and they get caught up in the minutia of it, you know, unfortunately. To, to, to. So if I had one idea I would plead everybody to hold on to is don't let go of those two or, or three groups. That's what's made COVID hard. You know, in part, COVID's been hard because we've had a ramp up of work, but it's been equally hard because we've been pulled out of those groups. 
and, and with the social distancing and finding ways to get that back, I think it's, it's really critical. And um, I mean, there's so much in your book that's practical and people can draw out about, you know, their networks and how they manage them better and how they become more efficient. But is the one last thought that you would leave people with about why it's important to read your book and what they can get from it? I wrote it because I didn't see any other source of help. <laughs> you know, I can see these collaborative demands rising on people. I was getting into interviews, especially with these kind of, you know, rising into their early 30s through their mid-30s people that um, were just overwhelmed. And, um, and so that was the rationale that kind of led me to say, okay, let's understand the people that are doing this well and what they're doing. And if I had one idea for people, um, it would be to be proactive and not reactive. Um, what I find is that as soon as people fall into a reactive posture of trying to answer everything, be faster and faster on these, you know, communications, um, they tend to get in a very defensive posture and life doesn't go so well. The people that are more proactive and they're putting structure into their lives, they're keeping those groups outside of work, they're doing sets of things like that. They're the ones that are actually doing pretty well, <laughs> both performance-wise and, you know, happiness-wise. And so that would be the the principle I'd, I'd hope for people. Uh, well, that's been a fantastic insight and, and uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great book. It's a great book and it's a practical book. And as you say, there's nothing really like it out there. And um, I'm sure that people coming into the workplace now and wanting to get on are overwhelmed by the sources that are available to them. Um, and I think that Beyond Collaboration Overload is a great read for people who are thinking about how they structure their time at work. And, and as you say, is um, multidimensional, it goes beyond that. So Rob, thank you very much for sharing um, an insight into your book. Uh, the book is available from the Work or Bookstore, but also available from all other good bookshops. <laughs> Rob, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. To buy the book, head to Workall's Business Library, where you can browse over 300,000 business titles. See you next time.